You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of the fifth gospel from the Akashic Record, a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner. This is lecture nine, given in Berlin on the 6th of January, 1914. Particular importance clearly attaches to everything that happened after the talk Jesus of Nazareth had with his mother. I have shown you how this presents itself in the fifth gospel, as I would like to call it. Now, to begin with, I would like to draw attention, I hope this may be done within a close group like this, to what happened immediately after the talk, that is, between it and the baptism by John in the Jordan. I am going to present the facts as they come to direct intuitive perception. They will be given without further explanation, so that everyone can have their own thoughts on the subject. We have seen that after the period from Jesus of Nazareth's twelfth to twenty-ninth or thirtieth year, some details of this have been given, Jesus had a talk with a woman who was his stepmother or foster mother, the physical mother of the Solomon child. The fruits of his experiences during those years entered with such energy into the words Jesus spoke that a tremendous power went over into his mother's soul with them. The power was such that the soul of the natural mother of the Nathan child was able to descend from the world of the spirit, where she had been from about the twelfth year of that child, enter into the soul of the foster mother and fill it with her spirit. And for Jesus of Nazareth himself, the outcome was that the Zarathustra I left him, as it were, with those words. The being who now set out on the road to the baptism by John in the Jordan was essentially the Nathan Jesus, with the three outer bodies constituted in the way we have discussed, without the Zarathustra I, but with the effects of that I, so that everything the Zarathustra I had been able to pour into those three outer bodies were indeed present within them. The being who then was Jesus of Nazareth followed a vague cosmic urge, as it were, vague to him but quite specific as far as the cosmos was concerned, and went to the Jordan to be baptized by John. You will understand why he cannot be called a human being in the ordinary way. For the Zarathustra I that had filled this being from his twelfth year, had now gone. It merely lived on in its effects. When this Jesus of Nazareth being set out to go to John the Baptist, the fifth gospel tells us, he first of all met two Essenes. He had often talked to them on the occasions I have described to you. He did not recognize them immediately, because the Zarathustra I was no longer in him. They recognized him, however, for the physiognomy which had developed 
when the bodies were holding the Zarathustra eye had not changed, at least not to outward appearance. The two Essenes addressed him, saying, Where are you going? And Jesus of Nazareth replied, quote, To a place which souls like yours do not wish to see, where humanity's pain can feel the rays of the forgotten light. Close quote. The two Essenes did not understand those words. Realizing that he failed to recognize them, they said, Jesus of Nazareth, don't you recognize us? His answer was, quote, You are like stray lambs, and I shall have to be the shepherd from whom you have gone astray. If you truly know me, you will soon run away from me again. It was a long time ago that you ran away from me. Close quote. The Essenes did not know what to make of him, for it seemed impossible to them that such words could come from a human soul. They looked at him in uncertainty. He went on to say, however, Why do you clothe yourself in forms that deceive? Why is there a fire burning within you that has not been kindled in my father's house? You bear the mark of the tempter. He has made your wool glitter and shine with its fire. The hairs of that wool pierce my eyes. You lost lambs. The tempter has filled your souls with arrogance. You met him in your flight. When he had said those words, one of the Essenes asked, Did we not show the tempter the door? He no longer has any part in us. Jesus of Nazareth replied, You did show him the door, but he went away to other people. Now he is grinning at you from the souls of those other people all around you. Did you think to elevate yourselves by bringing down others? You consider yourselves to be at a high level. Yet this is not because you have reached a high level, but because you have reduced others to a low level. That is why they are lower. You have remained where you were, and you only see yourselves higher than they are. The Essenes were taken aback. At that moment, however, Jesus of Nazareth vanished from view. They were no longer able to see him. Their eyes were as if blinded for a while. Then they felt the urge to look into the far distance. There they saw something like a mirage. The countenance of him who had just stood before them had become enlarged to giant proportions. And from this countenance came words that entered deeply into their souls. Quote, Vain are your efforts, for your hearts are empty, because you have allowed the Spirit to enter into you who deceptively hides pride within the mantle of humility. They stood for a while as if numbed by the countenance before them and the words it had spoken. Then the mirage vanished and Jesus of Nazareth was no longer with them. They looked around. He had walked on and they saw him a long way off. The two Essenes went home and never told anyone what they had seen. They kept silence until they died. I am giving these facts just as the Akashic record shows them, and everyone can have their own thoughts about them. This is important at the present moment, for the fifth gospel may well emerge in greater detail as time goes on, and any theoretical interpretation would merely interfere with what is to come. 
Jesus of Nazareth continued on his way to the river Jordan for a while. He met someone who may be said to have been in deepest inner despair. Jesus of Nazareth said, quote, To what pass has your soul brought you? I saw you eons ago, and you were different then. Close quote. The desperate man said, quote, I was a high dignitary. I had come far in life. I went from holding one office to the next in the human order of affairs, and it went fast. Seeing others lag behind in their attainment to dignity while I myself was rising higher and higher, I often said to myself, You must be a rare individual. Your great virtues are raising you above all others. I was enjoying good fortune and fully appreciated this. Close quote. Those were the words of the desperate man. He then went on to say, quote, Then something appeared to me as if in a dream as I was asleep. It was as if a question was put to me in my dream, and I immediately knew that I felt shame before this question. For the question put to me was, Who made you so great? And a spirit stood before me in my dream, who said, I have raised you high. But this means that you are mine. And I felt ashamed for I had thought I owed my advancement entirely to my own merits and talents. And then another spirit came. I could feel the shame I experienced in my dream, and the spirit said that my rise was not due to any merit of my own. And I felt so ashamed in my dream that I had to flee. I left all my offices and titles behind, and am now wandering aimlessly, seeking but not knowing what it is I seek. Close quote. Those were the words of the desperate man, and as he spoke, that spirit appeared again, standing between him and Jesus of Nazareth, and the figure of the spirit blocked out the figure of Jesus. The desperate man felt that this spirit had something to do with the luciferic element, and Jesus of Nazareth vanished while the spirit still stood between them, and then the spirit too vanished. The desperate man then saw that Jesus of Nazareth had gone past him and was some distance away. He resumed his aimless wanderings. Jesus of Nazareth then met a leper. Jesus of Nazareth asked, To what pass has your soul brought you? I saw you eons ago, and you were different then. The man said, People ask me, People cast me out because of my disease. No one wanted to have anything to do with me, and I did not know how to provide myself with the essentials of life. I wandered about aimlessly in my pain and came to a wood. Something like a luminous tree stood in the distance and drew me to itself. I could do no other but go to that tree as if driven. It then appeared as if something like a skeleton emerged from the luminosity of the tree, and I knew death itself stood before me. Death said, I am you, I feed on you. And I was afraid. But death said, Why are you afraid? Did you not always love me? But I knew I had never loved death. And as death said the words, Why are you afraid? 
Did you not always love me? It changed into a beautiful archangel. He then vanished, and I fell into a deep sleep. I did not wake until morning and found myself sleeping by the tree. From then on my leprosy has grown worse and worse. When he had told his story, the spirit he had seen by the tree stood between him and Jesus of Nazareth and changed into an entity he knew to be Araman or something Aramanic. As he was still looking, the entity disappeared and so did Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus had, in fact, been walking on for some while, and the leper had to go on his way. After these three encounters, Jesus of Nazareth came to the river Jordan. Let me mention again that the baptism by John was followed by the event known as the temptation, which is also described in the other Gospels. The form the temptation took was that Christ Jesus did not face one spiritual entity, but that the whole went in three stages, as it were. First, Christ Jesus faced an entity which was close to him because he had seen it when the desperate man had come to him. Because of that encounter he was able to sense that it was Lucifer. This is a highly significant combination of circumstances. And then the temptation by Lucifer happened, which is put in words as, quote, I shall give you all the realms of the world and their glory if you recognize me as your Lord. Close quote. The Lucifer temptation was repulsed. For the second attack, Lucifer returned, but also the spirit who had stood between Jesus of Nazareth and the leper, the spirit he had felt to be Araman. There followed the temptation, which in the other Gospels is given in the words, Cast yourself down. Nothing shall happen to you if you are the Son of God. This temptation, in which Lucifer could be cancelled out by opposing him with Araman and vice versa, was also repulsed. The third temptation came from Araman only. Christ Jesus was asked to make stones into bread, and this temptation was not completely repulsed at the time. And because Araman was not completely vanquished, later events then took the course they did, as we shall hear. Because of this, Araman was able to work through Judas. You see, an Akashic intuition has arisen concerning a moment which we have to consider to have been tremendously important in the whole Christ-Jesus evolution, and therefore in earth evolution. It was as if the way in which earth evolution is connected with the Luciferic and Aramonic element had to be gone through once again. Those were the events that took place between the talk Jesus of Nazareth had with his foster mother and the baptism by John in the Jordan. The Nathan Jesus, in whom the Zarathustra eye had been active for eighteen years, had been prepared by the events I have described to take the Christ Spirit into him. It is extraordinarily important that the point thus reached presents itself to us in the right way, if we are to understand this aspect of human evolution on earth. This is why I have tried to bring in a number of insights gained through occult research so that you may understand this aspect of our human evolution on earth. Perhaps it will be possible at some later date to speak here also 
about the things I have spoken of in Leipzig, where I attempted to make a connection between the Christ event and the Parsifal event. Today, I merely touch on this in connection with the facts given in the Fifth Gospel, hoping to discuss this further the next time we meet. Let me point out that the meaning and the whole course of human evolution comes to expression in all kinds of ways within that evolution. They are imprinted on it, as it were, so that evolving humanity can gain some insight into the course of events, providing they are seen in the right light. I am not going to discuss the connection between the Parsifal idea and the Christ evolution here, but rather something that was inherent in everything I said in Leipzig. In the first place, we have to consider how Parsifal, who was several centuries after the mystery of Golgotha, presents himself to us. He marks an important step in the working of the Christ event in a human soul. Parsifal was the son of a knight errant and the lady Herzelida. The knight went away even before Parsifal was born. His mother suffered pain and was in torment even before he was born. She wanted to protect her son from everything connected with knightly virtues and from developing one's powers by being a knight. She brought him up in such a way that he knew nothing of the outside world and of what it had to offer. Parsifal was to grow up in the solitude of nature, knowing only what nature could teach. He was to know nothing of what normally goes on among knights and among other people. The story even says that he knew nothing of the religious ideas that existed in the world. His mother only told him that there is a God who is behind everything. He wanted to serve God. But he knew no more than this, that he might serve God. Everything else was withheld from him. However, the urge to be a knight was so powerful that he was driven to leave his mother one day and go out into the world to find what the urge demanded. After many wanderings, he came to the Grail Castle. The best description of what happened there, best in relation to what we can gather from the spiritual record, was given by Chrétien de Troyes, who was also a source for Wolfram von Eschenbach's title Parsifal. We learn that in his wanderings, Parsifal once again, excuse me, once came to a wooded region by the seashore where two men were fishing. At his request, they showed him the way to the castle of the fisher king. He reached the castle, entered, and saw a weak, sick man lying on a couch. The man gave him a sword. It was his niece's sword. Parsifal also saw a squire enter with a lance from which blood was dripping onto the squire's hands. Then a maiden, carrying a golden chalice, entered, and the light that shone from the chalice was stronger than all other lights in the hall. A meal was served. Each time another course was served, the chalice would be carried past Parsifal into the next room where the fisher king's father would be given nourishment from it. All this had seemed something to marvel at to Parsifal, but at an earlier stage in his wanderings a knight had advised him not to ask many questions, so he did not ask about the things he saw, intending to ask only the next morning. 
Yet when he woke the next morning, the castle was empty. He called out, but no one came. He thought the knights had gone hunting and wanted to follow them. In the castle yard he found his horse saddled and ready. He rode away and had to be quick to get across the drawbridge. His horse actually had to take a leap, for the drawbridge was pulled up right behind them. He saw no sign of the knights, however. We know, of course, what this was about. Parsifal had not asked the question. The most wondrous thing appeared before him, and he did not ask. He had to be told again and again that it was part of his mission to ask about the wondrous things he encountered. He did not ask, and he was made to realize that by not asking he had caused a kind of ill fate. We see an individual brought up away from the culture of the outside world, not meant to know anything of that culture, who was intended to ask about the mysteries of the grail when these came before him, but ask in a virginal way, as a soul not influenced by the usual culture. Why was he to ask in that way? I have suggested on a number of occasions that the Christ impulse brought about a deed, but that humanity was not immediately able to understand what had happened. On the one hand, therefore, the fact that the Christ had flowed into the earth's aura had had a continuous influence, independent of what people might think and dispute in all kinds of theological dogmas. For the Christ impulse continued to work, and the Western world took shape under the influence of this Christ impulse, which may be said to have worked on human souls at a deep-down level and behind the whole of historical evolution. If it had only been able to take effect, insofar as people had understood it and fought over it in their disputes, it could not have contributed much to human evolution. But at the time of Parsifal, an important moment came when the Christ impulse had to be taken one step further. Parsifal was therefore not meant to learn of the sacrifice made on Golgotha and what the apostles, the church fathers and others, later taught in different theological streams. He was not meant to know how knights put themselves and their virtues at the service of the Christ. He was only meant to be in touch with the Christ impulse deep down in his soul to the extent that was possible in his time. That relationship would have been clouded if he had learned what was being taught about the Christ. The Christ impulse worked on not in what people did or said, but in the soul's experience when it is wholly given up to its supersensible influence. That was to have been the case with Parsifal. External teachings always belong to the world of the senses. The Christ impulse worked at a level that was beyond the senses and was meant to influence Parsifal's soul at that level. The one and only thing he was meant to do was to ask his question in the place where the significance of the Christ impulse could be revealed, at the grail. His question was to be induced 
not by any of the reverence which the knights believed they owed to Christ, nor by any of the reverence which the theologians believed they owed to Christ, but simply by the fact that his soul was virginal, though in accord with the time in which he lived. He was to ask what the Grail might reveal, and indeed what the Christ event could mean to humanity. He was meant to ask. Let us hold on to this. Someone else was not meant to ask. The story is well known. It was the undoing of the young man at Saïs, that he felt compelled to ask, doing what he was not supposed to do, and wanting to see the image of Isis unveiled. He was the, in quotes, Parsifal of the time before the mystery of Golgotha. At that time, however, the young man was told, quote, Take care lest your soul is unprepared when it is revealed what lies behind the veil. Close quote. Parsifal is, quote, the young man of Saïs, after the mystery of Golgotha. He was not to receive any special preparation, but was to be guided to the grail with his sto- soul still virginal. He failed to do the most important thing, for he did not ask, he did not seek to have the mystery unveiled to his soul. That is how times change in human evolution. We know, to begin with, these things have to be referred to in an abstract way, but we shall be able to go into more detail later, that this concerns the unveiling of the Isis mystery. Let us recall the image the ancients had of Isis and the Horus child, the mystery of the connection between Isis and Horus, the son of Isis and Osiris. That is putting it in an abstract way, however. The young man at Saïs was not sufficiently mature to have the mystery revealed. When Parsifal rode away from the castle, having failed to ask about the mysteries of the Grail, a woman a bride, mourning her newly dead bridegroom, who was lying across her knees, was among the first people he met. That is the image of the mother mourning her son, the Pieta theme, which is so often seen. It provides a first hint of what Parsifal would have learned if he had asked his question. He would have known the connection between Isis and Horus in its new form, the connection between the mother and the son of man, and he should have asked the question. Here we see a profound indication of progress made in the course of human evolution, something that must not happen at the time before the mystery of Golgotha ought to happen after that mystery, for humanity has progressed in the meantime. The soul of humanity had changed, as it were. As I said, we shall discuss all these things more fully later on, Here I am merely giving a brief indication. But they are only of real value to us if we make them truly fruitful. The fruit to be gained from the Parsifal mystery to which the image of the young man at Saïs has been added is that we learn to ask questions in a way that is in accord with our own time. Learning to ask questions is to follow the upward stream in human evolution. After the mystery of Golgotha, we have essentially two streams in human evolution, one that holds the Christ impulse, 
and gradually takes us to the heights of the spirit, and one that represents a continuation of the descent, as it were, taking us into materialism. At the present time the two streams are confused to the extent that by far the greater part of our civilization is tainted by the materialistic stream. We must therefore look without bias or prejudice at everything the science of the Spirit is able to tell us of the Christ impulse and everything connected with it, so that we may realize that the soul needs inner development in the Spirit in order to balance an outside world that is inevitably getting more and more materialistic. We must learn from elements such as those which have been presented that we have to learn to ask questions. We must learn to ask questions in the spiritual stream. In the materialistic stream, everything is designed to stop people asking questions. Let us consider the two side by side to get a clear picture of their nature. On the one hand, we have people who are materialists, which does not mean that they may not follow various spiritual dogmas, recognizing the world of the spirit in words and in theory, but that is not what matters. What matters is that our souls enter wholly into the spiritual stream. Those who are in the materialistic stream may be said to be people who do not ask questions, for they know it all. It is the characteristic feature of materialism that such people know everything and do not wish to ask questions. Even the very young know everything today and do not ask questions. It is felt that people are free, with their value as individuals enhanced, if they can always form their own opinion. The problem is, how does this personal opinion develop? We grow into being part of the world. With the first words we hear as children, we take something in. We continue to grow, taking in more and more, and do not realize how we take things in. Our karma has made us such as we are, and because of this we like some things more and others less. We grow up forming our opinions and reach the age of twenty-five, which, is, which as far as forming opinions goes is already quite respectable in the eyes of some critics. We feel our judgment to be mature, believing it to be our own. Yet anyone who is able to see into souls knows that it is based on nothing more than the outside life in which we find ourselves, which has become concentrated in our own soul. We may even get, become, we may even get into conflict by believing our own judgment to indicate one thing or another for us. Believing ourselves to be independent, we become all the more slavishly dependent on our own inner life. We form opinions, but are completely unable to ask questions. We only learn to ask questions when we are able to develop the inner balance that allows reverence and devotion to be retained when it comes to the sacred spheres of life, and when we are able to have an element in us that always seeks to remain independent of even our own judgment in relation to anything that comes to us from those spheres. 
We only learn to ask questions by being able to develop an expectant mood, enabling life to reveal something to us, by being able to wait, by feeling some hesitation in applying our own judgment, especially in relation to anything that should flow in a sacred way from the sacred spheres of existence, by not judging but asking questions, not only of people who may be able to tell tell us, but above all of the world of the Spirit. We should face that world not with our opinions but with our questions, indeed a questioning mood and attitude. Try to get a really clear understanding through meditation on the difference between meeting the spiritual aspects of life with opinions and meeting them with questions. You have to experience the radical difference between the two. This difference is connected with an element in our present time that needs to be given special attention. Our spiritual stream can only grow and develop if we learn to see the difference between questions and opinions. We do, of course, have to use our judgment in daily life, and I, therefore, did not say that we have to be cautious about using our judgment in all situations. No, it is in relation to the deeper secrets of the world that we must learn to develop an expectant, questioning mood. Our spiritual movement will progress through anything that recognizes and encourages that mood in a relatively large part of the human race. It will be inhibited by anything that goes against the spiritual stream by way of unconsidered opinions. If at truly solemn moments in life we seek to reflect what we may gain from a story such as the legend of Parsifal, who was meant to ask questions when he went to the Grail Castle, that story can become an example to us in our movement, and many other things will become clear in connection with this. Looking back once more to human evolution before the mystery of Golgotha, we have to say, At that time the human soul had a heritage that came from the time when it descended from heights of spirit to its incarnations on earth. It preserved this heritage from one incarnation to the next. People thus had an ancient clairvoyance in those days that gradually died away. As incarnation followed incarnation, the old clairvoyance was getting less and less. That ancient clairvoyance was connected with the nature of the human being in the external world. Our external perceptions, made with eyes and ears, are also connected with this. Before the mystery of Golgotha, people were like children. They learned to walk and to talk, and while the elementary powers of ancient clairvoyance still existed, they also learned to see clairvoyantly. They learned this like something that came to them as they entered into relationship with other people, just as they learned to speak because of the way the larynx is organized. They did not speak, excuse me, they did not stop at learning to speak, however, but progressed to elementary clairvoyance. This was bound to the human organization as it then was in the physical world with clairvoyance inevitably assuming the character of the human organization. A debauchee 
could not bring a pure nature into his clairvoyance. A pure individual was able to bring purity to his clairvoyance. That is only natural, for clairvoyance was connected with the immediate human organization. Because of this it was important that the secret of the connection between the world of the spirit and the physical earth world, which had existed before Christ Jesus came to earth, should not be revealed to human beings who had the ordinary human organization of that time. That organization had to be transformed and become mature first. It would have been wrong for the young man at Sais to see the image of Isis in his unprepared state. The ancient clairvoyance had vanished by the fourth post-Atlantean age, which is when the mystery of Golgotha took place. The human soul was then organized differently, so that the world of the spirit must remain closed to it unless it felt the urge to ask questions. The powers that were harmful to the human soul in the old times cannot touch it now if the question is put as to the secret of the grail. This secret concerns the element that had flowed into the earth's aura since the mystery of Golgotha. What had not flowed into it before, and now has flowed into the earth's aura as the secret of the grail, would remain forever unknown unless we ask. We must ask questions, which means that we must feel the urge to let an element that already exists in the soul truly develop. Before the mystery of Golgotha that element was not in human souls because the Christ was not present in the earth's aura. At that time someone who beheld the image of Isis in the right spirit and fathomed its secret could have done so because of such ancient clairvoyant powers as remained, making use of all that was in him as his human nature. Since the mystery of Golgotha, someone who begins to ask questions will be able to find the right way of doing so and will also get the right feeling for the new Isis mystery. What matters today, then, is to ask the right questions, that is, to develop the right attitude to the spiritual view of the world which can now be presented. Someone who merely wants to judge may read all the books and lecture courses without learning anything apart from mere words. Someone who approaches in a questing mood will learn far more than can be found in the words. He will find that those words bear fruit in the powers of growth that lie in his own soul. Anything we are told out of the Spirit must become real inner experience. This is what matters. We are especially reminded of this when presented with the significant events that occurred between the talk Jesus of Nazareth had with his mother and the baptism by John in the Jordan. These things can only have meaning for us if we meet them with a questioning mind, being alive with the need to know what was happening at the important watershed moment which separates the time before the mystery of Golgotha from the time after the mystery of Golgotha. It would be best to let these things live in our soul. Essentially, everything they are meant to tell us is to be found in the narrative itself. 
we do not need to add a great deal of interpretation. I wanted to make this general remark, especially in connection with this part of the fifth gospel, indicating that in our present time it is once again important to understand the Parsifal mood. Richard Wagner has tried to embody it in music and drama. I do not wish to enter into the great dispute in the world at large concerning his Parsifal. The science of the spirit does not enter into partisanship. Far be it from us, therefore, to become embroiled in the dispute between those who wish to keep Wagner's Parsifal the most significant document of the new Parsifal mood that exists today, in Bayreuth, where it will have a certain protection, and those who want to hand it over to Klingsor's realm. Basically, the latter is already happening. I have been concerned to show that the Parsifal mood has to be present as the Christ impulse continues to work at a time when human powers of judgment, our higher consciousness, do not yet enter into this. But when the spiritual mood to life should show the need for this mood more and more clearly, and the need for many other things of which we shall speak in the winter months that lie ahead. The end of Lecture 9